back to school and working as a youth pastor, so I never really got away from that world of youth. Um, there it is. And if you can move on to the next set of pictures there, David, I'll just uh, explain a bit of it here. So I'll give you a brief ministry update. Uh, in the top left corner there, as Aaron was saying, uh, my role is the director of people development at Youth for Christ. So we train uh, youth workers across Canada, and um, that's something called Summer Institute. It's an eight-day intensive course that we do in Hamilton every year. And about five years ago, we decided it would be fun to invite people from other parts of the world. We would find funding. They would come and learn how to train people back in their country. So this year, we had a person from Italy, uh, somebody from Serbia, somebody from Guatemala, and somebody from Bolivia. So what was pretty cool, and we've had people from Africa and Asia and so on, if you were in the room, we post the flags around every year, and there are now 27 different nations that have visited um, and received training from Youth for Christ and then gone home and done it in their own nations. So uh, it's been pretty cool to be part of that. Uh, second picture in the middle top there is m my wife and I, and mostly my wife is a pretty su fantastic support over these last 30 years, and she also pushes me. Um, to do the best that I can, so that's uh, part of her great role. And frankly, she always look, makes a picture of me look better. So, um, and then there's just the top right some people that uh, were congratulating me that night and some others who were receiving significant awards. And then uh, bottom left, well, that's a story. So about three weeks ago, uh, I was playing soccer and um, I sprinted toward the ball. I play on a men's master's team. I sprinted toward the ball, and my foot uh, went into a rut, and my knee basically buckled, um, and, and it felt bad. <laughs> um, and it made a bad noise. And so I was hoping that, um, I was hoping that it wouldn't be too serious. Uh, but anyway, three days later, I had to fly across the country to British Columbia and ran into a friend in the Calgary airport uh, who thought it was fun to hang out with a guy in a wheelchair. So that's <laughs> what that picture is. Uh, and I, my knee, it's swollen now, but it was, you know, my wife said about the size of, of a melon. So um, there you have it. So, and we had our national ministry conference where 420 staff gathered together from across the country. So you folks are part of that, um, part of praying for me, supporting me, encouraging me, and for that I'm always very grateful, so thank you. So if we can move on to the next slide there, David, please. Um, so this week, on Monday, so I had that soccer accident, as you know, and, and on this week, Monday, I went to see the specialist, and an ER friend on my soccer team had said, you know what, I, I, I think it might be meniscus, I'm not really sure. So I went to visit the specialist on Monday and actually got some really bad news. He said, you have a torn ACL. Um, and he said, so that's most likely going to need surgery and that's going to take eight or nine months to recover. So the week didn't start well. Um, and then and I knew I was preaching about good news. What makes the gospel good news? And so here's this thing that happens when you are preaching is that you feel like uh, what I'm speaking about better come from my heart and I better say it with integrity. And so for the first couple of days, I kind of wallowed in uh, self-pity, thinking, oh, this is depressing. Because if you know me well, 
Um, soccer is a pretty significant part of my life. I've coached, um, I played on a men's team for years and years and been with the same guys for about 15 years and now we hang out with their families, we go camping. It's, it's become a community uh, where I try to express the love of Christ to those people. So when he said eight or nine months of recovery, it wasn't good news. And then he said, you probably won't want to play again uh, because it's too risky. So there I was, um, Monday or Tuesday, feeling depressed. <laughs> uh, let's be honest, feeling depressed and thinking, uh, I, I need some good news. And so luckily on Tuesday, I got this in the mail um, from my friends at the Royal Bank who said I'd been pre-approved for $10,000. And I thought some of the challenges that we face in life uh, require something more substantial, don't they? Um, it's, it's not enough just to say that God loves you or you've been pre-approved for $10,000 loan or credit. Um, Matt Chandler has said this about our culture, and, and, and I like it, so I'm going to read it to you. Uh, when I think about our cultural moment, I can't help but see parallels with Christopher Nolan's sinister Batman universe. A society plagued by fear, a society where the line between good and evil has faded, a society marked by skepticism and cynicism, a society with very little hope. And then he goes on to say this. When we learn to look up more than we look within or look around so that we put our hope and trust in God, we're unleashed to be bold in and for him. We move beyond seeking to convert the culture, condemn the culture, or consume the culture. What I would like to say is we work towards trying to redeem the culture. But we walk with courage, with a deep optimistic confidence, for we know how this story ends and we know why we are in this story. So we need something more substantial. It's not enough just to declare, yeah, there's good news in God. Um, it needs to be founded on something. It needs to be important, doesn't it? Um, and, and I can say with confidence that this morning we're going to read something that's going to help us there. And I think sometimes from hearing my friends who are in the Christian community, we sit in a posture um, where we're afraid of culture where I think often we're afraid of what's happening out there, uh, or either that or sometimes we're angry. We're angry about what's going on because we feel like we're losing privilege in our society, um, that we don't have some of the things that we have enjoyed historically as Christians in our country. And I'm going to say this, it doesn't always bring out the best in us particularly in social media and so on, uh, conversations about our culture that are sensitive are often polarized, and I don't think we do a great job of reflecting Christ well, and it grieves me. And so when we talk about good news, it's just how do we think about these things? How do we talk about these difficult things in our community um, and still sound gracious? There was a famous sermon uh, back in the 1600s. Uh, the name of the preacher will escape me for a few minutes, Jonathan Edwards, um, who talked about uh, um, sinners in the hands of an angry God was the title of the sermon. Anybody ever heard of that? Okay, it was famous. And in that sermon, it was a scathing rebuke to the people in his midst 
about their sin and about the wrath of God and how if they didn't smarten up that God was basically and he wiped them all out. And so people in that day lived with this fear that they better toe the line because if they didn't, God was this cosmic being who's going to stamp them out, who's going to make their life miserable. Um, and here's the sad, sad part, I think, is that subtly it has influenced how we think about God for generations and for hundreds of years. That we have this picture of God that is angry. And Brian Zond, in his uh, new book, he's actually titled it uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And I love that. And what he's trying to do, and he does it quite effectively, I think, is contrast that idea that God is angry and upset with us uh, with the fact that God actually love us, loves us and offers forgiveness and graciousness and redemption toward us. It's a beautiful thing. So could we live in such a way that we could live with a gospel that instills hope? Um, that Thomas Wright has said is a big, fat, hairy deal, one that instills hope. We need an understanding of God that is substantial, that offers hope to our country, that offers hope to the next generations of people. James Bryan Smith, in his book, The Magnificent uh, Story, has said this, that um, he takes the three transcendental virtues of Plato and he says the magnificent story actually needs to be something that is good, um, that makes us think of bigger things. It needs to be something beautiful, uh, and it needs to be true. So when he says beautiful, he means not that we look at that object and we worship that object, such as when you see a beautiful mountain landscape, uh, but you look at that object as a penultimate thing. What that means is that it causes us to think about something greater. It causes us to think about God. So when you're at the lake this summer um, or wherever you are and you look out at the stars and you see something that is beautiful and fantastic, we don't say, man, those stars are great. I want to worship those stars. You say, let me worship the being who would create such beautiful things. Does that make sense? So let us look at Psalm 145 together. And uh, this psalm, it's a long one, but I couldn't figure out where to cut it off. <laughs> it's just too good. And so this psalm is framed around these four uh, major qualities of characteristics of, of God, of who he is. And so I'm going to read those, um, and, but I'll give you a hint beforehand. So the psalm talks about his greatness, uh, his goodness, and those are different. Um, his grace and then his glory. Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. 
He showers compassion on all his creation. All of your works will thank you, Lord, and your faithful followers will praise you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They will give examples of your power. They will tell about your mighty deeds and about the majesty and glory of your reign. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule throughout all generations. The Lord always keeps his promises. He is gracious in all he does. The Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. The eyes of all look to you in hope. You give them their food as, as they need it. When you open your hand, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in everything he does. He is filled with kindness. The Lord is close to all who call on him, yes, to all who call on him in truth. He grants the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cries for help and rescues them. The Lord protects all those who love him, but he destroys the wicked. I will praise the Lord, and may everyone on earth bless his holy name forever and ever. Hmm. So the psalm starts talking about the greatness of God, and really, really that's his identity, who he is, the creator of all things, the great and mighty God. Then it moves on to his goodness, um, and that's all about how God gives goodness to those who are in his family. In that time, this was particularly the people of Israel. So God is displaying his goodness towards those in the kingdom of Israel. And then it moves on, and, and we live on this side of, in, in the New Testament, um, where it also goes on to talk about his grace, which he be, did bestow in the Old Testament, but we know it most powerfully in the life of Jesus Christ. And that's how God displays his goodness to people who are even outside of the fold, who are outside of his family, who he wishes desperately would become part of his family. And then finally, his glory um, speaks of, you'll notice that King David, who wrote this psalm, uh, addresses God as his king. So here's a king who says, I I'm not the ultimate king. I'm giving glory, I'm giving credit. Everything that you see around you, everything that happens actually belongs to someone who is bigger and more important, who's the creator of all things, who is omniscient, omnipotent, uh, and all-powerful. So he declares that to him, his glory. And I want to suggest to you today, we're going to look at three things uh, in particular um, that talk about a magnificent view of the gospel. And if you're new to visiting church and you're not really familiar with that word, well, you've probably heard that word gospel used in one way or another. But what it means really is good news. And, and it's not just good news, you know, that you have a $10,000 line of credit at your disposal. Um, it is good news that is meant to be completely transformational. It's not something that you just hear once and then tuck away or something that makes you feel good for one minute but it's something that is meant to come into your life, God. And I'm not going to suggest to you that he makes everything rosy because look here. <laughs> but I will say he's a God who comes in who promises to be with us and present in every circumstance. He's big. This is an all-encompassing, all-changing, all-powerful message. So three things that 
A magnificent view of the gospel always does. And somebody has said that the gospel is always good news. First of all, it pierces the ordinary. A couple winters ago, um, and if you remember back then, sorry for bringing up winter. I feel kind of bad about this. Um, but in the winter, I think it was probably March, and I was looking out my back window, and it was kind of a bleak landscape. There was no color. What snow there was on the ground was tinged with brown dirt, uh, and it just looked ugly. Uh, it had been a hard winter. And I remember praying that morning and looking out the window and saying, God, um, if you, you know, if you could just do me this one thing today because you feel so very, very far from me, could you just show yourself to me? And this may seem silly to some of you, um, but then these two cardinals perched on the tree outside my window. So imagine the bleak landscape and then it's pierced uh, by these wonderful two red cardinals, which happen to be my favorite bird. So Hans um, von Ur-Balthasar, who was a Swiss theologian, he said this. Um, he said, I don't know if you ever think about this, but have you ever thought that things do not have to be good, beautiful, and true? There doesn't have to be color. Uh, there doesn't have to be chocolate. <laughs> but there is. And why is that? Because there's somebody who's created that, who's made it good, who's created those good and beautiful things. Joanne and I were on a trip um, in late April, not for work, which was fantastic. And we were driving uh, south through the United States, and, and the top four or five states at that point were also quite bleak and industrial and, and ugly. There was nothing pretty about it. And then um, you'll see in the top left corner of that picture, uh, there was a flowering almond tree. Hey, we got to Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, stepped outside of the car, and there was this beautiful tree and this green grass. And you know what? It didn't have to be. It didn't have to be, but God made it so. So in the midst of that ugliness, uh, there was beauty that overtook the ugliness that pierced the ordinary. I absolutely loved it. And I don't know what your view of God is this morning. Um, perhaps there's been difficult things in your life. Perhaps there's things that, you know, I've spoken with a lot of friends this week, uh, friends whose children have been struggling with drug addiction, um, whose family members have been struggling with mental health uh, disabilities, uh, people who have di difficult health things. There's just difficult things. And sometimes we let those things crowd us crowd into our lives and affect how we view God. It's hard not to. Um, but the truth is, how we understand God and who He is affects everything. Uh, it affects how we conduct ourselves on a daily basis, whether we leave the home with a sense of optimism or dread. Um, it affects us whether or not we believe that somebody can be healed of something. It affects our mental state. Uh, it affects how we approach people, how we have conflict with other people, uh, what kinds of careers we choose, what kind of relationships we have, what we do with our free time. Our view of God permeates everything that we do, and it should. Uh, and rather than being shaped by all the difficult circumstances in our lives, 
when we learn to see the magnificence of who God is as David has described him in this psalm, when we allow that to wash over us, guess what? Our view of God changes, and all those difficult things that we enter, we have a sense of hope. That's pretty fantastic. So what you may not know about this psalm is that David actually wrote it. Um, it's near the end of his life and near the end of the book of Psalms. And every letter of the Hebrew alphabet is used. You won't know that looking at it in English. Um, but the, people think that perhaps he did that so that people would be able to memorize the psalm. And they sang it. Uh, and actually in the Talmud, which is a Jewish commentary on Old Testament scripture, they said that the person who reads that psalm um, three times a day would be blessed and experience unusual closeness to God in the afterlife. Um, but Jewish people still practice that today. They would say it three times a day, and if they, they would think through the Hebrew alphabet, every letter but noon, which is a Hebrew letter, um, every letter would prompt them to think about something good about who God is. What prompts you? Uh, what prompts you to think about why God is good? I think in our culture, we are so inundated with resources and things around us that often we neglect looking at Scripture and sitting there for a while and allowing God to speak to us. We rush on, we get distracted, and I am the worst of these. <laughs> uh, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying there's this beautiful wealth of resources right at our fingertips and we often forget to look at it and taste that the Lord is good. The second thing that a magnificent view of the gospel does is this, that it compels us to proclaim God's goodness. In verse 4, David says, one generation proclaims to the next. Uh, we've been involved in Youth for Christ with six other ministries across Canada in a, in a project called Young Adult Transition Research. Uh, this is put on by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. The report will be coming out in August. And what the research has basically looked at is why are p young people, particularly after high school, um, leaving the church seemingly in droves? And the truth is that in every major transition, um, children leave the church. Adults leave the church. Transitions are hard on people. There's two major things, there's a lot of stuff, but two major things I'll bring to you this morning. One is this, one of the reasons that young people are checking out of church by and large is because uh, they consider the church to be intolerant. They don't have a place where they can have discussions about very real issues in their lives, um, about sexuality in particular, and so they have shied away they think, I can't go to church and I can't talk about uh, same-sex identity. I can't talk about things that are difficult, that are happening around me, that are happening to my friends that maybe I'm struggling with. And so they check out because people of the church have represented God in such a way as to say he will pay them no attention and he doesn't care. That's, that's drastic. And then what they're finding out is those who do stay connected with church and um, have a vibrant relationship with Christ, you know what the number one thing, the number one factor in encouraging them towards long-distance faith is? Mentoring. 
as old as the hills. <laughs> so when the psalmist says one generation will tell of your good works to another generation, it's significant and it's meaningful. So what that means is if we have a grade 12 student here on uh, this summer who's going away to university, if a mentor actually phones up a church in the community that they're going to or goes with that new student who moves to a new city and goes to church with them or somehow connects them, guess what? That makes an incredible difference. The research is that specific. Somebody who paves the way to do that uh, makes all the difference in the world. So, if you're an older person here in this congregation and you're saying, I really don't feel meaningful, I don't think that what I'm doing is important here, um, I don't talk to the young people here, guess what? When you sit and you talk about the good things that the Lord has done for you, how he has been faithful for you, how you have navigated some difficult circumstances in your life, young people may not seem to be paying attention, but somewhere down the line it pays off. And they say, somebody of an older generation um, cared enough to tell me about the good news of who God is. So mentoring makes all the difference in the world. One generation proclaims to the next. At our national ministry conference, I was talking about this. Um, lots of our staff, we have 819 staff across the country now. And young staff and old staff are saying, could we please talk around issues of mental health could we please have more discussion around sexual orientation and gender identity? Um, because we can't have these anywhere in our church. There is no safe place. Discussions polarize very quickly. And if you've ever watched uh, or read that on social media, uh, or been like these conversations get ugly quickly. And so we approached a gentleman from Journey Canada and we said, um, would you come into our national conference and in light of John 17, where Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, and, you, and you may know what his prayer was about, but he prayed about unity for all believers. And he prayed for his immediate disciples, then he prayed for the disciples who would come after him, and he said, um, I pray that they would be united so that the world may know. That's why this is so important to me. How we have these kinds of conversations are incredibly important. So I said, would you come in and talk in light of John chapter 17? Um, I, you don't have to give your theology about what you believe about this thing, but just tell us, how can we have dialogue so that we can be honest and that we can be considerate and kind to one another and talk about the full range of issues? It's a big issue everywhere, and it's not going away. I was speaking in New Brunswick two or three years ago, and I met with a friend uh, from childhood uh, that I hadn't seen in about 25 years, and, and we went out for supper, and Ron, um, Ron was a married man with three children, and he was a pastor, and he had been struggling for decades uh, with his sexual orientation. And so we sat for supper that night, and in agonizing fashion, he told me about the heartache that had been caused, about the things that people had said to him. Uh, and he said, Brett, he said, I would love to be a pastor. I still love God. And all I'm asking for here is when we have conversations with people 
um, about issues of sexuality, mental health, of anything, that we would be compassionate, that we would be gracious, that we would be kind because we represent Jesus and because Jesus showed us how to do that. So I don't even care what you think about that, to be honest. Well, I do. <laughs> That's an overstatement. But I really care how we conduct ourselves in those conversations with respect and with kindness. So I think um, the second thing that this does, it compels us when we have a magnificent message, we proclaim God's goodness. I'll tell you one more quick story. Uh, several years ago, I was flying out of Toronto and I would typically drive my car to Toronto, park in my parents' driveway and my father would drive me to the airport. Um, but on this particular day, he wasn't feeling well enough so I ordered a ca uh, taxi. And the man showed up and I got into the car and just because I'm a nosy or, or curious sort, um, I, you know, I noticed he had an accent. I said, so where are you from? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm from Lebanon. And I said, oh, really, why did you leave Lebanon? And he said, um, he said, well, it was very difficult there. I experienced lots of persecution. And I said, well, can you tell me more about that? Do you, do you mind? And he said, no. Um, he said, well, I'm a Druze. So, and then he said, have you ever met a Druze, my friend? He kept calling me my friend. Uh, and I said, no, I haven't. And he said, well, Druze is the oldest living religion in the whole world. There's only about 50,000 of us left. And he said, um, technically, we are a form of Islam, but he says, the Muslims hate us, and they persecuted us. I said, oh. And he said, well, also, the Jewish people, they, they hated us. They really hated us. Uh, and life was awful there. And I said, well, what did you do in Lebanon? He said, well, I was an accountant and an office manager for a large business of, of office products. I said, oh. Then he said, um, but you know what? You know who was the worst? Do you know who persecuted us the worst? And I said, no. Who was it? Um, he said, the Christians. He said, the Christians were the worst, my friend. So there's about a two-second gap. <laughs> and then he said that question that sometimes I hate. He said, so what do you do? And I said, I'm a minister. Um, and, the, and the ride, the car went really quiet. <laughs> and I kind of bit my lip and I didn't know what to say. And I could see him looking in his rearview mirror. And um, I didn't know what else to say. But I said, can I say something to you, my friend? And he, he said, yeah. What is it? I said, those people who persecuted you in the name of Jesus, can I tell you that that's not how Jesus would have wanted you to be treated? That if Jesus had have been there with you in Lebanon, he would have treated you with dignity and with kindness and compassion and grace because that's who he is. I didn't say it that smoothly that day. Um, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and, and I could see he had a tear streaming down his cheek. And then I began to cry. Uh, and this was all inside of about 12 minutes, taxi ride to the airport. 
Um, so we pull into the airport, get to the curb, he gets out, lifts my suitcase to the sidewalk and he puts out his hand and I put out my hand and he said, you've learned something today, haven't you, Mr. Christian? <laughs> I said, yes, I have. And I said, how about you? And he goes, yes, I have. And I said, bless you. And he said, bless you. And it was this magnificent moment. And that's what the love of God does to us is I don't have to try and defend God because I think God would have behaved differently. But I can say, let me tell you a little bit about the God I know and he would have loved you. The third thing that um, a magnificent message does is it changes our perspective. I just have to find that in my notes here. It brings God's perspective. And I'll tell you this, uh, John chapter 14, I'll just read a few words, and there's the disciple Thomas is uh, speaking with Jesus. And Thomas seems to always be the one who asks these questions that are uncomfortable. Uh, verse 5, and he says, No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. So they really want to know, what's the Father? And it's a common question that's asked in our culture. Why does the God of the Old Testament seem to be so different than the New Testament? And I think the God of the Old Testament is best understood through Jesus. So Jesus says to him, he replies, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So when we believe a magnificent message, it changes our perspective because Jesus comes along and he shakes everything up. <laughs> He's a game changer and he shows us what God is actually like. He became flesh. Not so that the world would be condemned, but so that through him the world might believe and might have eternal life and know his presence all the life long. And I close with a short story um, that I came upon a few years ago and that I absolutely love. And I'm going to read it just because I don't want to mess it up. It's called The Fence. In the Second World War, a group of soldiers was fighting in the rural countryside of France. During an intense battle, one of the American soldiers was killed. His comrades did not want to leave his body on the battlefield and decided to give him a Christian burial. They remembered a church a few miles behind the front lines whose grounds included a small cemetery surrounded by a white fence. After receiving permission to take their friend's body to the cemetery, they set out for the church, arriving just before sunset. A priest, his bent over back and frail body betraying his many years, responded to their knocking. His face deeply wrinkled in tan, 
was the home of two fierce eyes that flashed with wisdom and passion. Our friend was killed in battle, they blurted out, and we wanted to give him a church burial. Apparently, the priest understood what they were asking, although he spoke in very broken English. I'm sorry, he said, but we can bury only those of the same faith here. Weary after many months of wars, the soldiers simply turned to walk away. But the old priest called after them, you can bury him outside the fence. Cynical and exhausted, the soldiers dug a grave and buried their friend just outside the white fence. They finished after nightfall. The next morning, the entire unit was ordered to move on, and the group raced back to the little church for one final goodbye to their friend. When they arrived, they couldn't find the gravesite. Tired and confused, they knock on the door of the church. They asked the priest if he knew where they had buried their friend. It was dark last night and we were exhausted. We must have been disoriented. A smile flashed across the old priest's face. After you left last night, I could not sleep. So I went out early this morning and I moved the fence. That's what Jesus does for us. He's a game changer. He's a fence mover. So when we think that life is ugly and that things are difficult, he promises to be present with us. When we forget who he is, we're reminded through scripture that he created it all, that he walks with us, that he knows us by name, and according to Psalm 139, hair by hair. It's a God who loves us. And we hold on to a magnificent message like that. It changes everything. Let's pray together. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to gather here together and to worship you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that you are good, that you are great, that you bestow your grace on us. And Lord, we give you praise for that. We praise you for your goodness toward us. May we live as people who have experienced your goodness and may we show grace to others. In the strong and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Let me show Brett our appreciation. <laughs> and let's stand and worship together.